I really need to sort my life out here. This is ridiculous. Hello and welcome back to Widows AF. You're here with your host, Rosie Gilmoss. And joining me today, I have Jonathan Gilmoss joining me as our co-host. Hello, John. Hi, Rose. Hi, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us again today. We are going to have a little reflect back on Elizabeth's episode, which went out on Monday. Now, this was a episode that's been incredibly well received, hasn't it? We've had enormous amount of positive feedback on this one. And yeah. I genuinely think that the majority of that was because, A, how wonderful Mike was. He sounds just like this incredible bear of a man. And we'll talk a little bit more about this for people that didn't haven't heard the episode yet. Elizabeth's kind of, I don't know, her positive mindset, uh, for want of a better term, is, is quite something to behold, isn't it? So the, the kind of overarching message from this entire conversation was just that positivity and when you think about what we were talking about, we're talking about you know losing the love of her life, and somehow we've managed to put out this really positive episode, kind of life affirming, and how there is still joy to be found. And I don't know quite how she did that, but it was some sort of magic, and I'm I'm very privileged that we were able to share her story. Yeah, it certainly was, and you know she's interjected funny stories, um, and even funny stories when the actual subject of it was actually quite sad, like the conversation with her auntie, for example. Oh my God, yes. For anybody that doesn't know, her aunt was was caring for him and she just basically said to him, look, if he seizes, don't try and help him. You have to let him die. And, you know, the look, on, as she described, the look on the aunt's face, you know, because these are conversations and terminologies that we we are kind of more used to, particularly if you're dealing with a terminal illness. And of course, to people a little bit reserved from that world, that's a fairly shocking thing to say. My grandma on uh, at my first wedding, she was staying at a house and she said to my mum, she said, if I die in the night, don't tell Rosie. She said, just go ahead and get married. And my mum was sort of thinking, it's quite a hot day, you know, I think we might notice if you died in the house. <laughs> but uh, she didn't. So anyway, I digress. So back to Elizabeth's episode. Um, what were the sort of key key moments for you, John? Because I know that you've made some kind of copious notes because you were, you were really taken by my mic, weren't you? Well, yeah, I was, and, and it's, it's where to start. So one of the notes I made was missing the diagnosis, not misdiagnosis. Because I was listening to my episode now is that it took quite a while for us to get an actual diagnosis for Sarah. Mm. Um, and Elizabeth and Mike went through the same the same sort of scenario. And, you know, it's stressful, but they've got to be right with these things, I suppose. Yeah. It seems to be quite a common theme in younger widows that when somebody presents to a medical professional with symptoms that perhaps are symptomatic of, of a cancer, if they are fit and well otherwise, then it isn't where their initial thought process goes to. They will sort of rule out everything else first. But obviously, when you're dealing with something like cancer, time is absolutely of the essence. And the speed at which you can get a diagnosis really is or can be a life or death process. Yeah. I mean, the other thing as well is it's how the patient presents to the doctor. Mm. Because you, when you go to the doctors, you, you know, I've got a sore throat. I think I did something and this is, and they're just human beings that can be led. Yeah, um, so, you know, in a highly emotional area when, you know, your partner or yourself is like quite seriously ill and you don't know what it is, how do we work with the GPs or the doctors or the hospitals to, to let them, you know, actually think about, oh, actually maybe we should do this test as well. And that, I think that's quite a hard problem to solve if I'm honest. 
Yeah, I mean, perhaps what I mean, I'm sort of thinking on the hoof here, but you know, you talk about carrying this laminated list of Sarah's um, symptoms and condition around every time you went into a medical setting. And I guess perhaps if people are genuinely concerned about something, um, perhaps sort of, you know, creating a, a bullet point list of, of all the symptoms that they're concerned about so that they can be addressed as a, as a whole. I mean, I, I'm not a medical professional at all, so I am literally making this up as, as I go along. But I'm just trying to think of, you know, ways that people can make their voices heard. And I know that Elizabeth, I think they had three separate opinions for Mike. So they really did sort of pursue the, the diagnosis. And even, you know, quite far on into his illness he was still you know very fit and well and I mean one of the kind of funnier anecdotes was the one about him falling over in the, the garage and getting very angry wasn't it yeah <laughs> yeah and then basically at the end you know we've all done it when you lose your temper um but it's how we managed to bring it all the way back down and just go well that was an overreaction wasn't it yeah I love yeah, that that when I was editing it, I think I just rolled out with a belly laugh. You know, the kids <laughs> looked at me from across the room, and was like, "What are you laughing at?" Oh, yeah. So they... well, the editing has to done in in headphones. <laughs> we got a bursting in front of the kids. <laughs> and you know, so one of the other points I've made here is the card game you like to play with his friends, the Magic the Gathering, and that got me thinking about men's groups and men's mental health, and this current push for you know, men, you've got to talk. It's good to talk. Find yeah. someone to talk to, but we don't do that. Right, we just—I don't know what it is. We just biologically do not open up in that way. But where we do open up is when there's distracted talk. So we go for a game of snooker, or you know, some guy down, you know, the nights out down the pub for some man. That is their mental health outbreak. Let him. They get drunk. They let it all out. They go home. They're refreshed. Um, so you know, maybe if if uh, you're a man, or there's a man in your life, or in your group that you can see is suffering a bit. Take out for a game of snooker or just something not nothing energetic, yeah. a game of poker, a game of cards, a game just just where they're not thinking about it and see if you can just engage in that distracted conversation. Um, because you found it works with the children as well, haven't you, Rose? Yeah, it, it is actually. And I was going to interject to mention that because, yes, particularly with um, our eldest son, who's a teenager now, pinning them down to conversation is quite difficult and um and I can remember my mum wanting to have you know conversations with me and I just wanting to sort of you know hide and actually a lot of the more challenging or in-depth conversations I tend to do them perhaps on car journeys because well firstly they can't run away from me and secondly we're not looking at each other and I do think sometimes that makes things easier and I often go for walks with my friends and we talk about quite I don't know. I mean, it's not the usual chit chat that it used to be. I think I don't know whether it's my personal social circle or whether it's people as a, as a rule, but we tend to be talking about much more real things, I suppose, more intimate things, and sharing that we're struggling. And I saw this like, internet meme once, and it just said, you know, and all the mama, mothers took off their capes and said they were struggling, and and everybody else would read theirs. And it, I can't remember it exactly, but it stuck with me, and I thought. If we vocalise it and we say, actually, life's kind of difficult at the moment or I'm struggling, then most of the time you are met with with love and support and somebody will say, oh, God, me too. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. And it just opens up the conversation about mental health or grief or divorce or, I don't know, work struggle, whatever these issues are. Finding a way to vocalise it, be that a card game, be that a walk, be that, I don't know, 
the gym, I don't know, getting pissed in the pub, whatever it is, you finding a way to to talk about things to people, it, it's really, really important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, briefly going back to Elizabeth's story, one of the other points that I made was the was the surge. Um, yeah. Uh, we, we covered this in my episode, but um, I, I think I called it a, a moment of brightness rather than surge. Uh, Elizabeth knew the correct terminology for it, but this this idea that they they come back to life and you're with them and you're like you're back yeah um and i'm still undecided whether it's a good thing or a bad thing um because you, you get you get filled with hope and then it just gets ripped away from you and, this, and then actually destroyed quite close closely after um but then i suppose you know for me on my own personal journey i i managed to get that one bright day which came after six months of like just absolute darkness. So, um, so yeah, it's it, it, it's strange to hear that we the human body goes through like a set procedure when it's when it's getting ready to go. Because you know the other one was the, the what's called terminal restlessness, which is one of the final stages. Which anyone who's been through um, like the slow protracted um, demise of their partners will will be aware of and. You know, Mike just shot up in bed and started having a rock show. <laughs> yeah, of course uh, he did. <laughs> and, you know, and for Sarah, she wanted to be in bed, she wanted to be in the wheelchair, she wanted to go out to the garden, she wanted to back in the house, she was, and it just, it didn't stop, and it was 24 hours a day. And difficult to watch them in, in being agitated, because every fibre of your being wants to make this kind of, I guess, want a better word, this sort of end of their life aspect as, as peaceful and calm as possible, and then to see them getting agitated and frustrated that must be very difficult to watch and we shared the video shortly after your episode and i may reshare it again actually and it was a beautiful video of sarah singing in the car and 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 holly's sort of reaction to it when she saw it and it's made me go all goosebumpy actually because yeah that must have been really difficult to see the wife the mother you know the woman that you guys loved back back alive again and then to have it just stripped away as quickly as as, as yeah. you saw it but the, the things on the day um it was brilliant yeah. everything was normal everything was good everything was like really really good it was it was the day after when it crashed and yeah then you know rolled into the end that's that's one of the, so on the day you get the happiness but does it make the hurt on the other side of it harder i, I don't know i don't know which way to go on that one um from a personal um perspective as somebody that never had the privilege of knowing Sarah I really enjoyed watching the video of her I found it quite sad to watch as well because she's obviously quite poorly you can see how how frail she is but I got a little glimpse of the woman that she was and so I was very grateful for the opportunity to see that um and so I think there's something very special about the fact that you have that and and for Holly to be able to see that in, in years to come as well because Holly's iPad is you know full of photos and videos of her mum which is really lovely yeah, that's the other that the the other thing that we wanted to talk about with uh, with Mike is how he'd done the letters and the notes to his ne- his nephews and nieces. Yeah, and actually, that does makes me sort of reflect back on um, when uh, Elizabeth talked about them not having children and how they were going through the adoption process. Now, when she first started to talk about this, um, and she sort of had said, you know, and she said the words, oh, you know, I, I, I'm pa- I'm paraphrasing here; it's not exact. Um, that they, in a way they were quite relieved that they hadn't managed to go through the adoption process yet. And my, as, as she was saying, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, that's understandable because, you know, she was a, 
managing your own grief is very difficult anyway in children. But it was then the way she went on to talk about actually it wasn't because of how it would have impacted her. It was that the children that they were hoping to adopt or they were hoping to um, adopt them from a foster uh, situation. So these children would have come with, um, you know, problematic situations anyway, and she didn't want to pile on any more trauma for them. And I thought, oh my God, like even in the midst of all this, you know, devastation, that's what she was thinking about. She was thinking about these kind of unknown, unnamed children in all of this. Yeah. And it just, I don't know, there's certain things that people say that really stick with me. And that was one of them because I just thought, it, once again, I thought it spoke volumes about um, the kind of people that her and Mike were are. It was it was an incredible, incredible episode and, and very, very moving. For many different reasons, like you know, both sadness and happiness. Well, yeah, and she's also in any relationship. Well, she's married. She's so sorry. Yes, she, that's right. Elizabeth is married. Um and once again, I think there was a real power and a magic in hearing her talk about this because this is something that we obviously feel quite strongly about. And it is this idea that um you love your your person, you love them, and you are devastated when they die. But you are still allowed to go on and love somebody else, and it doesn't diminish the love that you had for your person. And we talk about it quite a lot because obviously this is this is what we exist with. This is we know it because we live it. But I do think people still, especially outside of the world of widowhood, perhaps struggle to understand how how you can do that because they will look at their alive person and think, oh my god, I could never ever be with anybody else. But somehow, and sometimes, and for some people, you are able to love again. And somebody who is worthy of the love that you have left to give comes into your life and you grab onto it and you embrace it. And to hear that she has done this and this, you know, really, you know, after see Taylor Swift and they're really having a great time because there's no nothing and no reason to say that you cannot have a great time because you're widowed. You, it's, it is part of you and it sticks with you, but you are you are still alive and you are still vibrant and you are still worthy of all the happiness and the love. Yeah. And that's where we used to add this podcast. Mm. It's to change that narrative around the opinion of what a widow is. We're not public property. We're human beings. We have our own life and we're in control. And yes, in the early years, we need help and we need assistance, but doesn't any human being. But that doesn't give the right for a sense of ownership over another human. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. It's very scary, scary when you, you know, inverted commas, come out as being in a new relationship. Of course, it is because you're very worried about hurting people, and you know, part of it's how you might be perceived. But a greater part for, I know, for us personally, I'm sure for most people, was the fear that you would load up any more pain onto people that had already been devastated. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I think Ben's mum. You know, I, I really didn't want to hurt her. I didn't want her to think that in any way I was. Reg- her son and I, I have spoken about this previously and I'm very very fortunate that she was incredibly huge-hearted and um, you know has been incredibly welcoming and, and loving to you and Holly and it's worked out really nicely for us but you know if I was a mother who lost a child you, if, if you flip it around you can see this the fear of them being forgotten I guess and um, or replaced and all the other terminology that you think about when you're in that place but Actually, to bring it back to the second or third or fourth child analogy, you do, the human heart is, is an incredible thing. And the capacity for love, it, it doesn't disappear just because you've had your heart broken. It just takes a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more understanding and a, and a little bit more patience, perhaps. 
another key conversation starter actually from this particular episode was that at work. And when you are caring for somebody who is very poorly and in this case terminally ill, uh, how on earth do you navigate work? I am going to be speaking at a a conference next week about return to work and ways in which uh, employers can make it more easier and more accessible and kinder on us. I would be interested in hearing from anybody that has a positive and negative or any suggestions on this because it is Tuesday, so speed is of the essence here. But um, I'd be very grateful of any anecdotes that we can use. And, and again, I'm going to ask John just to talk a little bit about um, having to go to work while Sarah was ill, having to maintain a job, keep you know, keep the bills paid, etc. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I have to admit my scenario is is maybe a little different to other people's just because of the job I had. You know, I uh, it's the first time I've said this on the on this podcast. If I'm on, uh, I was one of the directors of Watchfinder. I ran all their IT systems and everything else, and, and we 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 literally just sold the business as Sarah fell ill. So as she was going into hospital in the early days, I used to be I'd be at work in the morning and then the afternoon, and then it got more and more and more serious. I had to step out of work, and I just sort of popped in to keep keep them abreast of what was happening. But I wasn't around. I wasn't around very much. Um, and you know, I I have to say thank you to my business partners at, at Watchfinder for giving me the the space to help Sarah. And then, of course, when she she passed, I took a month off. That's pretty because it was Christmas. It was December. Uh, by the time we'd done the funeral, it was pretty much into the Christmas run, and I didn't want to go back. Um, and I started back early early January. Now I only went back for the structure to keep my head <laughs> straight in those initial, um, you know, fried chicken and red wine <laughs> uh, for, uh, times. Um, um, and um, if I'm honest, within two months, I found it incredibly challenging because, you know, I, I had to take Holly to school, pick Holly up from school, be, you know, the, the, the solo parent aspect as well as the full-time job. And the job was very, very demanding. We were, uh, you know, I was managing the integration with the company that bought us and, they were, you know, they were having meetings about import and export and wanting me to fly out to New York, do presentations to the, the rest of the team out there. And um, it became not untenable, but it got to the point where I had to stick my hand up and ask for a change in working hours. Yeah, it, and actually it isn't um, compatible with the life of a solo parent, is it? Most people doing these sorts of roles will have backup. And I know that we actually talked yesterday um, about a conversation that you'd had with one of your business partners, and he said, "Look, why don't you buy in some help? Why don't you get a, a, a nanny, you know, live in nanny yeah. situation?" Um, but I'd, I'd, I'd absolutely no judgment for anybody that does this. But you felt at that point in time, Holly was only six, and in fact, she wasn't quite six; was she? She was five, and you felt at that time that the most important thing you could do for her was actually be more present. Yeah, um, and. And uh, the bond between you is undeniable. You know, she she adores you. You're her entire world. You know, and it's it's well, not entire world. I like to think we feature. Um, <laughs> but she, you do, you do. But you you are very very close, and I I do think that's probably because of the um, and the privilege that you had that you were able to do it. Um, but for people, I guess, who are forced back into very demanding roles very quickly, you know, a month is nothing, right? No. 
I mean, I don't, I'm thinking of people who work in, also they really tease their brains because I can tell you now, my brain did not re-engage until about a year ago. So one of my colleagues did say to me towards the end of my first year, um, you seem much better now, John. Earlier In the early days, you were angry. Yeah. Every meeting you were, you were angry because there was an edge to you and you, you took our shit and, and everything else. And anybody who knows me, that's not my character. Yes, I can be grumpy, but I'm not, inher- I'm not inherently challenging and, um, and aggressive or angry towards people when I disagree with them. It sort of makes you kind of um, quite combative, I suppose, uh, just because, well, of course it does. You know, you've had to squash down some really, really enormous feelings in order to be able to go into work and function. So your fuse is going to be, I guess, fairly non-existent, actually. And also there's an element of kind of the futility of it all. You know, you're going into work and your your wife's dead and you must just be thinking, what's the fucking point, right? Well, it was, it was it. I think it was some of the conversations you were having. Like, they were important in the business context. Yeah. But in my head at that time, I'm like, why the fuck am I talking about this? Like, I've got so many other things that I could be doing and I need to be doing, but I don't need to talk about what colour of sign should be. Yeah. Uh, and arguing about what colour of sign should be. So I think that's where the aggressiveness came from. Yeah. Because I was cut through and say, can we just move on? This is ridiculous. Yeah, I think aggression is probably harsh. I think it's more you're a forthright. Let's not tie you with the aggressive brush. Okay, we'll, we'll go for forthright. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And I think, um, you know, even PTA and school stuff and things like this, if you don't necessarily go out into paid work, you, you begin to go, well, who cares? Like, who cares? Because something so enormous has happened that everything else at least for the short term, seems kind of inconsequential. And I just think there must be so many of us going back into jobs that we used to be able to do almost with our eyes closed and suddenly finding that we can't do it, that we cannot force our brains to disconnect from what's going on at home. Or, I don't know, we're having to be called out of meetings because a child is refusing to go to school or they've had some sort of meltdown or breakdown at school. Or, you know, you have a teenager that's navigating really heavy emotions and you are now the primary breadwinner and you've got to go to work. And I mean, I can feel my pace pace speeding up because the idea of it's like stressing me out even thinking. Yeah, but so one of the things I I thought about and and I've discussed with you as well is, um, so one of the things I used to do with my team, because my my team was quite young, they were software developers um, and they were, were, I say young, they were 40 and below. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> including me, but apparently that, that, that's clusters in nowadays. Um, and it was this concept of if you come in, some had mental health challenges like everybody does, um, and some days you don't want to talk, some days you do want to talk, some days you just chill, you're cool. Um, so we used to get them to put flags on their monitors. Uh, we'd have the morning stand up, and if they weren't for they'd just put a red flag on the monitor, and that just meant I'm not having a very good day, just be, like, but sort of be gentle around me. And I think we, we can expand this concept further, not just to widow, I mean, primarily to widows, but uh, to to anybody. And, you know, let, let's jump on a wristband trend and, you know, have a red wristband that can flip to green. If if it's red, people can see it, clock it, you get an understanding. All right, I'll tread carefully. And if it's green, then yeah. as you were sort of thing, um, you know, treat the person as, as they always were. I think it's a really interesting concept because, there's a, it's twofold, isn't it? Some people find it quite frustrating that nobody will talk to them about their grief. And other people find it quite invasive that they might want to just get their head down and get the job done. And somebody's like, the head tilt comes in and, you know, I'm so sorry. And there's or the head tilt. The head tilt. 
<laughs> There's a time and a place, right? And um, and if you have had to somehow find the strength of within you to haul your ass back to work in the early days of grief, you may not want to have that particular Pandora's box opened whilst you're trying to kind of compartmentalize into a different role. So the idea that you can visually indicate whether you want to talk about it is actually something really lovely and something that I definitely want to explore because I don't know that we just want to make life a little bit easier for for widows and widows because it is hard. It is incredibly hard. Every single step that you take is hard and it feels like it's going to defeat you. And I know that from talking to widows and from personal experience, if you have an employer that offers um, empathy and you genuinely believe that they have your best interest at heart, then of course you're going to work harder for them, aren't you? Working somebody back into a role that may be too demanding or too stressful or too you know, just requires too much brain power it's not going to foster a healthy relationship anyway so you're not going to get the best from from somebody so currently at the moment we're in national grief week i think is the correct terminology forgive me if i'm wrong um and way and many other kind of bereavement charities are the campaign for this it's under the hashtag dying matters and it's a call for workplaces to adopt bereavement policies to support staff so there was lots of chatter on the socials about this so there's lots of information out there and we are really kind of passionate about creating a kinder world for widows to live in so i will let you know um how it goes i'm absolutely terrified if i'm completely honest with you but i will uh hopefully <laughs> put my big girl pants on and smash it <laughs> if i don't we'll never speak of it again deal <laughs> and with that, I think we'll draw this one to a close and we very much look forward to speaking to you all next Monday where we have got a, a really kind of exciting episode actually. This is called Nikki who is obviously a widow and she has set up a dating app called Chapter 2. Now the term Chapter 2 is fairly divisive in widowed circles. I'm saying Switzerland on it and that was a is a dating app and she has now launched or is in the process of launching another app which is called Widow's Fire. Listeners from the beginning will be aware we have talked a little bit about Widow's Fire. I try not to go too deep into that one, but I think I, I, <laughs> I may have to at some point. And Widow's Fire is a term used to describe the kind of overwhelming sexual urges that happen when you're bereaved. And it's very um, taboo and it's very shame-inducing. And I'm quite pleased that somebody has sort of gone, do you know what, I'm going to talk about this. We're going to talk about it in all its glorious, messy detail. So she's got lots of inspiration out there and um, um, I had a really great chat with her about what brought her into the world of widowhood and what she's doing with her trauma. She's, and, you know, she's using her trauma to create a new life. So I think it's a really interesting episode. I hope you'll enjoy it. Brilliant. All right. Thank you, everybody. And thank you very much. Remember, be kind to yourselves, guys, and take care.